Hi, I'm Malak Fuad, and welcome to What I Did Next from ANT Media. We're currently on our season break, and we'll be back with new episodes in September. In the meantime, I wanted to share my conversation from last year with Amy Moefi, a dynamo in the region's media space and an inspiring role model for the younger generation of empowered Egyptian and Arab women. Listen in. Amy and her team are the digital publishers of Cairo Scene, El Fasla, Startup Scene, Nifty Scene, Nifty Arabia, Scene Noise, Scene Traveler, Scene Eats, Cairo Zoom, and the Scene Now app. Amy brings passion, authenticity, and a sense that anything is possible to everything she does. She is a fierce proponent of what our generation used to call girl power and is awed by how Gen Z women have given that voice full throttle. Amy is too modest to say it, but she's a role model for the young generation of empowered Egyptian and Arab women. We begin our episode as always with one of our icebreakers. When was the last time you did something for the first time? The pandemic, you know, ended up being um, very pivotal for me in that respect. So um, a very good friend of mine, um, Amr Samra, who I know you've also had on we the show. We know very well on the show. <laughs> Absolutely. Amr gave me um, a call quite early on in the pandemic. And he had this um, idea that we would go and basically just hang out on the beach in Marzalam for no explicit purpose or with no objective. We're just going to go to Marzalam. And I don't know. And it seems like such an innocuous thing, but the amount of anxiety that this idea caused in my mind. But why was that? Was it because you would miss, would be missing work? This was the crazy thing, right? Because we're, everyone is working from home, which is what Omar said to me. Omar is like, you're sat in your living room on your laptop. You could do this anywhere. Um, and, and I just, and I do, and he obviously, thought, you know, someone like Omar Zamra who like, you know, will you know, climb Everest yeah. and cross the Atlantic and he and makes drop everything, of a hat. He makes everything sound like so much fun. <laughs> yeah, you know? and, and so easy, yeah. right? Um, so it was, it, he couldn't obviously understand why I was being so dramatic about this. But I, I kind of, you know, I relented and we went and we ended up spending a good couple of months just living this entirely different way of life on the beach with the kids running around in and out of the sea all day, working you know, quite literally in this very kind of idyllic setup out of time. And that, just saying yes to that and the results on my peace of mind and my sense of self and being present. I know generationally it sounds weird to a younger generation to hear this, but for me, I felt like, yeah, you know what? I have earned the right to say yes to things that have no other objective but to give me joy and to create opportunities for adventure and to create opportunities for new experiences. Also, I think if you're such a structured person, I'm like that too. You I you you end up thinking in the future a lot, not in the present. Mm. And that kind of experience is all about the present. That's such a good point. My entire my entire outlook in life had always been about what's next, what's next, what's next. You know, you're stuck, you're on the beach in the middle of nowhere with someone like Omar Zamra. Um, and so you end up kind of, you know, having these very idealistic conversations at three o'clock in the morning, you know, under the stars, thinking you're going to live this incredible utopian life for the rest of your life. And obviously that's not the case. And obviously, yes, I have gone back professionally to a very frenetic way of life because that is the demands of the work. And that is, you know, I don't, you know, I, 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 you know, I have to work to live. I'm not doing this for fun. But I also think that you, 
you thrive on that, yeah, which is a good thing. For sure. Yeah. But at the same time, what I have managed to keep very consistent is this idea of saying, saying, kind of just saying yes. Does that feel like it's something going against your character? Is that like against your instinct? Are you pushing yourself into that or are you just letting it happen? So my instinct is still to go, oh, no, I don't have time. Or, oh, well, absolutely not. That's just not going to work right now. Uh, that's always my instinct. But now that I'm aware of it, I'm much more cognizant of going, okay, so that's how I feel. But I, but I never once regretted it. Yeah. The second icebreaker question is um, about your social media usage. Yes. And I'm kind of embarrassed <laughs> to ask it because you are the social media queen. In my mind, you are synonymous with Instagram, specifically Instagram. Now I'm 100% team Instagram. Although I'm not, although I'm not on TikTok myself, I know work-wise, I'm very, very excited about TikTok. Instagram is what gave all of our content platforms and all of our websites a different level of visibility that Twitter uh, wasn't able to achieve yeah. in quite the same way. Um, and now TikTok is actually doing the same for us. The numbers on TikTok are just so incredible. Tell me about your fascination with the Gen Z girls and yes. specifically the accounts you follow sure. of these girls. I grew up pre-internet as an Egyptian, as a Muslim, who in the English countryside, without any kind of access to an Egyptian or an Arab community, and outside of the incredible pride that my family would invest in us being Egyptian, no sense of identity. So for me, it is fascinating to see Arab women and Egyptian women, uh, th third culture Arab women, even those who are part of the diaspora, use this platform in a way that is really dismantling what it means, traditionally what it means to be an Arab woman, what it means to be a Muslim woman. It's incredible for me because there is a bravery and a fearlessness mm. in embracing their identities in ways that we would never have been, we would never have dreamt of even doing. They have, they are fearless when it comes to talking about sex. They are fearless when it comes to talking about sexuality, about gender, about religion, about identity, about nationality, about boundaries in ways that we were, we'd never have imagined doing. And so you have, you know, if you talk about specific accounts, you have someone like, Salma El-Wardeni, who is an incredible writer and broadcaster, just, you know, released her debut novel. She is half British, half, half Egyptian, Egyptian, born and bred in the UK. Do you think that's part of the ability, that the fact that they are not based here or that they are half something else? Yes. But but there's a plenty of them who are based who in are the local East, who are just as fearless. Yeah, yeah. And so there's someone like her who sees no um dichotomy in talking about sex freely and also talking about her i her her nation her identity her religious identity i also think this is how you begin to break down prejudice exactly by having these sorts of conversations yes. out in the open yeah and it shines a light in a place that has been there for decades mm -hmm. but was always hidden oh yeah. absolutely yeah. and it makes the reality is, is for, for, for such a long time, Arab women and Muslim women were not represented 
in any sort of media in a way that was real in a way that was accessible or just very simply nuanced you it's know not black and white exactly you were either the good girl virgin yeah. or you were the whore exactly what these women are doing is showcasing the nuances and then you know on the younger end of the spectrum there's an entire generation of gen z girls you know you have in 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 egypt you have something like zena whose account is called cat calls of cairo and she is fearless about being a very vocal activist about things that matter to women, things that matter to women in this country and things that matter to women in this region. Um, you have this whole group of girls, you know, unfortunately it, it's it's defunct now, so I stole them all and took them to Mo4. But you have this whole group of young women who had worked on a publication called Teen Times, which was led by a girl called Fadila. And she's now with you at and Mo4. And she's now, I waited four years for that girl to graduate. That's hilarious. So you were tracking her. I, oh yeah. Like I was, <laughs> so she reached out to me very early on and I was, I was just obsessed with what she was doing. But tell me, how do their parents react? How many of these girls' parents are on board, are supportive? Are they going against the grain? Are they, are they from a liberal family? Look, it goes without saying, and I, and I think we've always got to be very aware of and cognizant of privilege when we have these conversations. So it goes without saying that there's a part of their confidence that comes from having the privileges of education and social structures that enable them and empower them to do so. And a comfortable life to and a certain And a comfortable extent. life to do that. You, yeah. know, you don't have the capacity to think about these things and to, to be an activist for these things if you have very pressing issues that you need to deal with. But at the same time, there are people who cannot afford the fearlessness to use their voice mm -hmm. in that way. Mm -hmm. But seeing that and having access to that, and everyone has access to these stories now because of social media is important because it makes you feel seen and it makes you realize that even if the people immediate to you are telling you you are wrong for being a certain way or thinking a certain way, that might not necessarily be the case. And I think what these girls do, whichever generation they're from, is by using their voices so fearlessly, fearlessly is open up a space to let women think, maybe this is possible for me and maybe this is okay mm -hmm. too for me. So tell me about some of the other accounts that you follow that you're really into. I, yeah, I think so I'm also, I'm a big content junkie. Um, I'm a big, sorry, news junkie yeah. and lifestyle content junkie. So I will also follow, so I follow the New York Times, I follow the New Yorker, I follow the Times. Don't always agree with everything, but I, I, I'm just, I love consuming content like that. I love reading. I love, you know, just every, everything that I can consume. Um, the Economist or Wired or TechCrunch or Vanity Fair, all of it. And do you follow any accounts about the writing process itself? Yeah, so I follow, it's a very, very old literary publication, the Paris Review. Um, and I remember even like in my very early career as a writer, there's the, the whole volume of books called the Paris Review Interviews. I'm really interested in this idea that your concept of Egypt when you were growing up in the UK was very different to what was the reality when you finally did move here? So the Egypt of my childhood was was two things. So obviously growing up in England, there was this very exotic view. It was the pyramids and the pharaohs, and I was obsessed with ancient Egyptian history. Um, and I would buy up all of these books about ancient Egypt. 
Um, and then there was obviously the Egypt of the summer holidays, which is, you know, grandma and my aunts and and Elizba and this sort of that that yeah. Egypt, you know, this very family oriented which is wonderful and it's idyllic and it's amazing and it and and it's and it's a core part it's your it's your childhood yeah yeah, yeah, it is it is and then obviously you grow up in the west and you know and then you know in the 19 early 90s the gulf war breaks out and then the middle east becomes war and terrorists and 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 these horrible ideas about what it means to be arab and what it means to be muslim constantly bombarding your sense of self mm -hmm. did it change how how british people perceived you as you were growing up so or not really Malik, you know maybe it did and yeah. maybe it didn't but it wasn't ever something that we talked about so yeah. it wasn't ever something that i was cognizant of you know i, I grew up i grew up in these type of harry potter style schools where mm -hmm. i was the only i was the only foreigner yeah um i was in one of those types Right. So you understand. Yeah. So it's in hindsight, I can see maybe where there were issues, but I but I knew nothing else. And I didn't have things like social media telling me to be aware of other things. And so I just took it for granted as, yeah. as that's the, you know, other than the very superficial things about like hating my curly hair and my big bum and all of this. Yeah. Stuff, right? yeah, yeah. So it's funny. I have cousins. I have cousins, direct cousins in the States. And I think it's an American British thing. You know, they have this mentality of we're American with egyptian heritage yes it's very different but it's very different yeah. i think in england and plus and whether it's 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 a different type of immigrant in in the uk also i'm third generation uh, living in england maybe that was part of it but it was very much mm -hmm. you know you are egyptian and we are proud to be egyptian and yes you have this british passport and yes you have a british nationality which affords you certain you know when you get to be educated here that is a privilege and you're very lucky etc but none of this none of this is as amazing uh, uh, and wonderful as being egyptian with our seven thousand years of civilization and we invented everything so i i must have been 16 when we first got the internet in the house that which is super ages me and and I remember, and so it was Ask Jeeves or Yahoo or something. And the first thing, you know, it, it, you have this box. This is telling yeah, you to search, type something. Type in. something. Search for something. And the first thing that I searched for was the word Egypt. And I put in the word Egypt because, you know, it, it, I w I wanted to connect. I needed to know. I needed to connect to something or someone that would make me understand my identity more. I was. I was desperate to have a connection to this thing called Egypt that had been made so big in my mind. But you know, I find that really interesting because I wonder whether that's connected to your imagination and your desire to write. Were you, uh, when you were in your teens, were you writing just for the fun of it? Nope. You weren't. And I wasn't one of these kids who kept a diary. Or okay. Anything. But what I read, and this is, I only realized this many, many years later, anything that I um, succeeded at, whether it was exams or essay writings or getting my first jobs when I was younger, like at university, I did so because of my writing, because I would have to write an essay or I would have to write them expressing something or other, or I would have to write a personal yeah. statement. And I found those things they came to me very, very naturally. Like there was a there was a constant voice in my head that I didn't realize was was a writing voice. And and did you derive satisfaction from that, or did you just think it's a means to an end? 
at first I thought it was a means to an end. And then what happened is, uh, so I studied um, uh, business at the University of Bath and it was a four-year sandwich course, meaning you did two um, kind of internships or work experiences. And I ended up for, for eight months at the University of Texas in Austin. And I would email my uh, experiences so I would just start emailing my friends list, a mass email going, oh, and this happened today, this happened today. I don't write these like long emails. And then the strangest thing started to happen is I would get replies from people who weren't on my email list. They would forward them on. So these emails were being forwarded wow. on going, oh my God, this is so funny. Or what Fine. she says about, you know, this experience, I totally relate to that. I had the same experience. And, and that's when I sort of, peg that there was something going on here that I wasn't so cognizant and of before. And what did you feel about that? Were you excited about that? Yeah. And yeah. I, got, I got really into it. Yeah. And then my mom, my mom was like, you're Amy, you're a writer. I'm like, that's such a big word. I want to stop you there. Did you find yourself changing how you wrote, knowing that other people were reading it? Not back then. Not back then. And I'm sure you've experienced this as a journalist or writer. That is the most amazing space to be in. Yeah. Before you become wary, the worst thing that happens to you is when you become aware of your reader. Absolutely. It kills the well, you're, soul. You're, you're perceiving how they're perceiving exactly. you. Exactly. It's very difficult. It's yeah. very yeah. different. Yeah. Than, yeah. I, it, not at that stage at all. It would be years before I began to, began to be much more cognizant of that. And mom would say, Amy, you're a writer. Amy, you're a writer. Amy, you're a writer. I'm like, that's such a big word, mom. It's just because you're my mom. You have to do that. And then I started getting jobs. Like, I started getting really cool opportunities because of my writing. And so I started to see the pattern. I'm like, mm, okay, maybe this is a thing. Yeah, maybe yeah. this is what I know how to do. And then, and so that was what put it in my head. So despite a degree in business, Amy embarked on a career in writing, and coupled with her intense desire to explore her Egyptian roots, she began working at Enigma magazine in Cairo. We'll get into that right after this short break. I wanted to take a minute to tell you about our bonus episodes, available exclusively for subscribers. On each bonus episode, I take a deeper dive into my guests' industries, and I share some extra parts from our conversation. For example, you can find out more about the screenwriting process with acclaimed filmmaker Mo Hevzi, or about the luxury design industry with Monez and Ayad Raouf, the sisters behind Ochtin. All of these great stories are only available on our bonus episodes, so subscribe now to unlock this amazing extra content. You can subscribe in Apple Podcasts by clicking the subscribe button or on our website and get instant access to all our bonus episodes with a two-week free trial. And now, back to the show. I wanted to take a minute to tell you about our bonus episodes, available exclusively for subscribers. On each bonus episode, I take a deeper dive into my guests' industries, and I share some extra parts from our conversation. For example, actor and comedian Rami Youssef told me about his thoughts on cancel culture, and ex-anchor and now author Hala Gorani told me her thoughts on the future of journalism. All of these great stories are only available on our bonus episodes, so subscribe now to unlock this amazing extra content. You can subscribe in Apple Podcasts by clicking the subscribe button or on our website and get instant access to all our bonus episodes with a two-week free trial. And now, back to the show. Welcome back. I'm Malak Fuad, and you're listening to What I Did Next, and this is my conversation with Amy Moefi. I want to know uh, a little bit about how you got into Enigma. For me, Enigma was how I discovered you. And I remember your column on the back page. This was before you became managing editor. Yes. 
Tell me a little bit about how that came about. At some point during those four years of university, I'd visited Egypt for a little while, and it was the first time. So Enigma magazine was launched in 2000, and so maybe I had seen one of the very early issues. And I, and I remember I picked up this magazine. I was fascinated, Malak, by the world that was in this magazine. And by the way, I don't mean the high society world of it. I mean, it was spotlighting successful young Egyptians doing amazing creative things. Musicians and actors and business people who are incredibly successful and who were it in that magazine were the stories that I had not been told. Mm. And when I searched for Egypt on Google, those were the stories that I had never imagined seeing. And, and it had a tremendous impact on my imagination. It was also, I think, the, the, what you were seeing reflected the life you knew in the UK. It was the mirror of that, mm. right? Because it was the same sophisticated milieu of people doing the same kinds of things you would come across in the in the UK. Yes. So for you, you weren't expecting that, no. right? Yeah. I didn't. It was a side of Egypt that I would not, because Egypt was just a few weeks here and there. Yeah. Summers, Easter's, whatever. It was a side of Egypt that, again, it's 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 a bubble, but it was a side of Egypt that I was completely unaware even existed. So when everyone was looking for jobs, I thought, you know what? I am going to email Enigma. And I emailed and I didn't get any response. And I called and I didn't get any response. And I called and I called and I called like a mad woman. And eventually I got through to someone. Her name was Laila. She used to be the deputy editor. And she was like, okay, can you fax through a writing sample and your CV? I, I faxed I love it. it. You're faxing. Yeah, it. I was faxing. Again, <laughs> yeah. this goes back to yeah. the floppy disk. Exactly. You know, that's why I'm not playing with TikTok. Exactly. Like, but I got no response. So eventually, I, they must have taken pity on me, but I got a call going, okay, so you can meet the Esmin Chaheta, who is, of course, still the owner of Enigma. I grew up with Vogue. And I used to rip out pages of Vogue magazine and put them on my wall. I've, this was my obsession. And now here's this Egyptian woman who is just as glamorous and beautifully dressed and, and holds herself in the same way as these women who I had looked up in, at magazines in England who I had idolized. And it was just incredible for me. And I remember she offered me, <laughs> she offered me 2,000 pounds a month on the spot. But obviously, I would have to move to Egypt. And I was like, done. Done. The, that decade was between 2002 to 2012 was really the best decade of my life. It afforded me opportunities and experiences and a community and access. Yeah. Um, you got to know everyone in town. I got to know everyone. Yeah. That was that. That magazine was the way that was that was opened every single door at the time. At the time. And you also developed your skills as a writer. I developed my skills as a writer, as an uh, editor, as a journalist, as an interviewer. And so a few years into my experience at Enigma, I pitched this idea of writing my own column that talked about my experiences, these incredible experiences that I was having as a young single woman living in Egypt and trying to straddle this divide by, you know, this divide between East and West, which is a stranger thing to navigate when you are back in the homeland and you discover that these traditions um, that were so tightly held onto within your home mm. because you were the other, are not so necessarily tightly grasped in your own country. And you begin to think, wait a second, I was told I wasn't allowed to do that. That's really interesting <laughs> that you, you saw it from the other side. Huh. Yeah. You know, I was like, wait, why? 
Why are people drinking? Yeah. Why are girls having sex? And you're. <laughs> why, why am I a virgin? Why have I wasted my time? <laughs> I, I remember that column so well. I remember it for two reasons. First, it was a very big breath of fresh air. Um, it was extremely well written, which my experience of reading anything in Egypt was <laughs> never well written. I go into a restaurant and I read a menu <laughs> and I want to take out my red pen. <laughs> it drives me insane. I know. So it was extremely well written, including the whole magazine, actually, I have to say. And secondly, it was just like Sex in the City for Egypt. Mm. And it was so refreshing. It was amazing. You know, it's funny, though, because by comparison, you know, we talk about these Gen Z girls on Instagram. Yeah. By comparison, it was so tame. Yeah, but, I mean, but at the time, at the like time said, it wasn't. At the time, at the no time one, it wasn't. No one was telling these stories openly. And so at the time, it was considered brave. Were you criticized for that? Did a lot of people criticize you at that time? You know, it was, you've got to remember again that this was before any sort of before social media in the way that it was now. And so I didn't have that kind of feedback loop and cycle that I might have had now. It was years later when people would meet me and go, would tell me about their experiences with the column, which then became the book, their experiences and and the conversations and and what their parents were saying and what they were saying, or that I began to be cognizant of the impact these stories were having. But luckily you had already passed that phase. Yeah. So that didn't matter. Didn't matter. <laughs> Let's take a break and talk about your brothers. Yes. Because this is a natural like yes. progression into the next phase of your life. So you have three younger brothers. Yes. You have Adam. Adam, Waleed, and Timmy. And Timmy. And Timmy is real name Timmy. is what? So tell me about your brothers and how you interact with them. So there's actually a big age gap. Um, so between me and Adam, there's six years. I'm the oldest. And then there is a seven-year gap and the, or an eight-year gap and then a 10-year gap. Um, so growing up, it was a bit of a weird dynamic because it wasn't growing up in the sense of because obviously there was a, that big age difference. Um, it is, I think it is one of the greatest privileges of my life having my three brothers because it gives you a, tr a, a tremendous sense of security. You have your own little army. With you at the head. With, as long <laughs> You're as the I'm, general. As long as I'm the head, <laughs> like the, world the, world is, the world is right. <laughs> then, then the world is right. <laughs> the reality of it is that it's because we run a business together, it is incredibly messy. And it is incredible. You know, people always ask, well, how is it running a business together? And it's always such a difficult thing to answer because of the nuances of it. And there are vicious fights because we're siblings. So there are no boundaries, right? You don't have any of those professional boundaries. We're so much better now. We've been working together for a decade now. So we're so much better now than when we started. But there are no boundaries to stop you from saying anything. But then the benefit of that is that you know the next morning it's water under the bridge. Yeah. And I'm not worried that anyone is going to, I'm not worried that anyone is going to actually screw me over. I mean, who knows? Do you watch Succession? Yes, I do. Okay, so I mean, I mean, I'm obsessed, I'm obsessed with it. Yeah, I love that show, but it's a Murdochs, isn't it? <laughs> I know. Yeah, I know, but I'm obsessed with it, and I always say, and I, when we have these, when we have these horrible fights, my brothers, I go, just, you know, it'd be so great if we were just having this fight on a yacht so, instead of so you, you're Shiv. <laughs> yeah. Yes. You know, and and, I, and sometimes these things will happen, yeah. like you know, I'll watch an episode where a contract will have been signed behind her back, and it gives me so much anxiety because this shit happens. Sure. Of right, it does. with the best of yeah, intentions, yeah, yeah, yeah. or maybe not. Yeah, but it yeah. happens all That's the time. That's hilarious. But so, when you were growing up, you felt 
responsible for them you yes. felt like the mom in a yeah. way because you had an age an age yes. difference right yes. i kind of by default took on that matriarch yeah. role and also i wasn't very i wasn't my teenage years i wasn't very rebellious right i really told the line and i was a geek and i took all of these lessons that all parents teach to their kids but then also you know, complicated by heritage and religion and culture, very much to heart. Plus you were the eldest. Plus I was the eldest. Yeah. And I took them to heart in a way that they never did. Mm. Um, although my parents never differentiated in our upbringing between girls and boys, I just took it to heart yeah. more. And so I, by default, kind of took on a very maternal role of Delsa. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I want to know, obviously, uh, I know that uh, Adam was the one who pulled you away from Enigma. Yes. Um, so tell me how that happened. So Adam has always been an entrepreneur um, by nature. Very, you know, since he was 16, he's been starting a variety, such a hustler, starting a variety of businesses. And so he had started, so he came to visit me in Egypt. Um, so it was long before the revolution and there was the Shakira concert happening at the pyramids and the process of us getting the tickets was such a mess that Adam had the idea of setting up an online ticketing platform. And so it was the very first digital ticketing platform in Egypt. Once he had founded Taskarti, he then realized, well, he's ticketing the events. I mean, the next stage is to cover these events. So he founded Cairo Zoom, which is again, was revolutionary. You know, it was funny because Enigma, one of the most successful things in Enigma was the back pages where you would have society pictures, right? And, but they were very posed yeah. and they were very curated and obviously they would come out a month later because it's a monthly publication. And so Adam did this very disruptive thing um, where he hired a bunch of very young university kids to go into these parties and take candid photos. Parties in Egypt had never been showcased publicly in that way, ever, mm -hmm. in the media. The 2011 revolution was a turning point, not just in Egypt, but in the region as well. From Amy's perspective, it changed the way publications like Enigma approached stories. What am I supposed to talk about? Because Enigma is not going, it's not a news publication, and it's not our place or position to tell these very important stories. Obviously, you know, Yasmin as a businesswoman understood that she had advertisers and contracts and, and there, a publication had to come out. I didn't understand those responsibilities at the time. All I understood was, what the, how am I supposed to yeah. do a public, how? I don't know. Yeah. I, I am not trained for this. Yeah. I'm not a news journalist. I'm programmed to cover celebrities. Yes. I know yeah. how to interview celebrities and artists and business people doing really nice things and pretty places. Pretty things. Pretty things and pretty places. <laughs> And so I got stuck. So what I did is I took my, um, I took one of the Enigma photographers and I went into Tahrir celebrity spotting. <laughs> and I would look for celebrities to take photos of. And then I did a whole feature. And there were a lot. And there was a lot. Yeah. And I did a whole feature yeah. where all of these celebrities, we do a beautiful picture of them and they would, and then uh, a picture of them in Tahrir and quotes about how they felt about the revolution. That was my solution. And then I did, a, and for the cover feature, I did an article called the Twitterati, where I, obviously I was very involved with Twitter and I could see that there was a few young people who, because of their voice and the power of their voice, were able to get attention. Um, I put them together 
and I did a photo shoot with them, which was in hindsight a ridiculous thing to do because you want to remain anonymous. No, because, no, they were happy to do it. Okay, it just didn't go very well because I don't know how to do anything. I mean, I'm trained to do fashion editorial shoots, right? Did you dress them up? No, I didn't. I didn't dress them up. I knew enough not to dress them up. Hilarious. But kind of, I did take them to the studio of this very famous fashion photographer at the time. Didn't go very well at all, <laughs> at all. <laughs> but you know, but these are the Twitterati, the young faces. The young faces, you know, the young people changing Egypt. Yeah. And then and we did a fashion shoot called I'm Egyptian. What's your superpower? Yeah, I love that. But it's amazing because with that one cover, you announced the death of one world mm-hmm. and the beginning of another. And it's it's really, it was serendipitous yeah. because it also catapulted you into yeah. your next phase. But tell me, Amy, when you did go and join Adam, did you realize that you were leaving the writing world behind i'm not i don't want to talk about you know i'm not thinking so much about the structure of enigma of a company an established company but the writing because you were clearly enjoying that and it was where you were that was my passion it was your passion and it was your foundation Mm -hmm. did you feel that you were were you consciously leaving that away i wasn't i really thought Essentially, it was in Cairo Zoom was media, and and part of what I was, you know, and we knew we would launch, and we were in the middle of launching Cairo Scene, which was more of a had a more of a blog format yeah. suitable to the time, and so in my mind, I was doing magazines but digitally. I had no idea what the implications of that would be. I had no idea how innovative we were being. I had no idea how quickly the company would grow. I had no idea that off the back of that, we would become a social media agency. Mm-hmm. And it was at the time just you and Adam. No, it was me and Adam and Walid and Timmy. So Walid and Timmy joined Adam before I did. Oh, yeah, they so did. Not a lot of people I know see. that. So it actually was the three of them and, and I was the you. latecomer. But I it see. wasn't called Mo4. Mm-hmm. It was Taskarti and Cairo Zoom as businesses yeah. that they were working I on. I see. And then I joined latest and I was like, no, let's come on, let's make a make it a proper Structure company. It properly. I wanted to call it Mofo. And then I was and I was vetoed. And I was like, well, the, well Mo- I'm glad they vetoed I know, you. <laughs> I, had, I had no, no long term vision, apparently. But I, and then we call I called it Mofo. Yeah. Which is I was like, it's oh, very it, cute. It also still works. It's very cute. So when I, I started and we were self-funded, we had no outside investors. The office was my my apartment. It was just ludicrous what we were doing. And we had two developers. That's it, two techies and just the four of us and you know the first day i went in i'm like what the f- what? yeah 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 um and i would so i started working my my contacts in order to sell banner ads and did you feel even then responsible for your brothers and that it was it was on you to make yes, this work yes i felt yeah i felt a lot at the time it's very different now but at the time i felt it was a lot of me and adam to work to make it work and we were coming at it from very different adam's an entrepreneur and i i you know i was a creative i was a storyteller um and because we had no outside investment in order to push these websites, we were using Facebook profiles at the time and Twitter. And we were being very creative and very cheeky and very cool. So when I started to go to sell banner ads, the clients I was meeting would say, yeah, whatever. But you know this thing that you're doing on social media? We don't really understand social media. And we're getting pressure from abroad that we need to have our own social media accounts. Can you do this? I was like, what? You you want to pay me to post on Facebook <laughs> they were like yes mm-hmm. I'm like uh, okay all right you know we had to say yes and did you find that let's say a company like just 
as an example, McDonald's, mm. you. but they would also keep alongside their traditional yes. advertising company. Yeah. And so that happened for years. That was the yeah. case. So for years, whether it was, you know, you know, Coca-Cola was one of our first big FMCG clients. And for years, it would be the case that we would walk into the, the boardroom and, you know, the creative agencies would be the people with muscle in the room. At the very end yeah. of the talk, they were like, okay, cool. So now we're knowing what you're doing. Uh, yeah. The, you, you, Facebook, what are you going to do with Facebook? And I would, it would drive me crazy. Yeah. And I would have, I remember very early on getting so frustrated by this. And there were some of the big shots at, at, and sitting in this room and saying to them, if you don't understand that you have to put your digital strategies first, you're going to be dead in the water because you will not be advertising on TV very soon. Yeah. And I was laughed at. I was laughed at. Now look at us, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Now look at us. I say the same thing now when people are, you know, think we're being crazy talking about Web3 and crypto and NFTs and, and metaverse. You know, people are going, what are you doing? I'm like, ah, it's the same thing. You guys laughed us out of the room when we talked, when yeah. we said television, advertising yeah. would be dead. And and the tables, it was incredible how quickly the tables mm. shifted mm. that everything became digital first. But my God, Malak, we worked harder than anyone can we it was it was 24 7 we sacrificed everything and amy how do you and your brothers divide it up how, who's responsible for so what? now before it was very messy but now we're very clear yeah. so adam is business development um but what i mean is he's responsible across, across all so it's a lateral yeah, position across okay. all of yeah for yeah. now yeah across all of those sectors um for a long while i was mainly focused on the agency which i had to be because that was the revenue driver but it killed my soul i can imagine it was because horrible. there's no I mean, you're just a manager at that point. There's no creativity in it. Yeah, and I'm not built for you're an I'm administrator. Too, yeah. yeah, and I'm too. I can't. I'm not built for yeah, client work. Yeah. You know, I can't see you doing yeah. that full time. I was, and I was. How long were you did, did you, did I, you do for, that for? For until until recently, until after the pandemic. Oh really? So, and my the entire time, I was like, I. I can't believe I have these magazines and that's not my main focus every day because this is my passion and it's my skill set. Exactly. And I kept saying, if I could take the media, I can, I can flip that. Not only did I want to flip that because that was my passion point, but because, and people, industry people hate me for saying this and they hate, because I say, I'll say this in panels as well. I think, I think, Malek, that every agency, traditional, digital, whatever that you want to call it, we're all living on borrowed time. What do you mean by that? Because... Every single person now has the tools in their hands yeah. to tell their stories and to own their stories in ways that are unprecedented. The intermediary is not necessary. The intermediary is entirely unnecessary. And we are just squeezing out the last drops of revenue that we can. And I am not willing to be like those people who sat in the room and laughed yeah. at the idea of television being dead for advertising because I'm scared. So tell me about how you're looking to the future to ensure that Mo4 is not doesn't become a dinosaur. Yes. What are your next? So two things. So our big our big refocus on the media and the big expansion, the aggressive expansion that has happened on the media is because I believe what people will always need is if even if they're able to create their own message, they need someone to amplify that message for them. And the media is that mouthpiece, right? So whatever happens, I'm talking in terms of advertisers, not in terms of pure storytellers. 
advertisers are going to need the space, right? That space is not television anymore. They need to go to someone who can tell their story and make it reach millions of people. And that's what we do essentially from the business side of Move for Media. And so I understand that expanding that aggressively is 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 the is my methodology of survival as a business. And so I'm also focused very no one in the Middle East does what we do in terms of digital media. Um, and, and, and so I'm very focused on us now expanding our portfolio into the Middle East. On the other side, we're also looking forward in terms of where is digital going? And, you know, and this is, I, you know, we believe that this is the the last days of Web 2 and we are on the precipice of the Web 3 revolution and and everything that will bring with it. What will it bring? Who knows? But we're big believers that the technology on which this is founded will be revolutionary in the same way that internet versions one and two are revolutionary. They will change the way we trade. They will change the way we create communities. They will change the way that we own our content and own our identities. And that's very important. Tell me as well about the e-commerce. Yes. It's called Botit, which it I love. It's the called Botit. Tell me about that. B-O-T-I-T. Yeah. We just finished the tagline on it. It's So it's everything now is the tagline. Um, or bought it, got it, one of them. <laughs> anyway, so the idea is, so it's purely AI-driven. Um, it's a purely AI-driven e-commerce app. It's very important to realize that a lot of previous apps would say that they were AI-driven, but essentially it's just a pumped-up call center. Mm -hmm. This is truly AI-driven. And we have been very fortunate because of this network that we have built, that we have quite literally thousands of vendors on this app of the biggest international and local brands. So presumably so, they are from the MO, the Mo4 way beyond database, the Mo4. But, but obviously we have obviously the access of well. Mo4. Yeah. So it's quite literally thousands of vendors. So you can go on there and you can go... Um, you can go, I want, you know, um, eggs and a loaf of bread uh, for my grocery shopping. I want a new pair of jeans, packet of cigarettes um, and a canoe and <laughs> yeah. whatever. So it's like being in a mall and getting everything in whatever. one shot. And then the way that the UAI is done, it's single screen. So you're not toggling between different brands and then going into different vortexes. So you can literally go, yeah, that's the packet of crisps that I want. That's a top that I want. And those are the jeans that I want. No one does that. One of the funnest things that I find is that I can order a top from a high street brand and at the same time something from one of these cool Egyptian independent labels who don't have any logistical um, facilities and it comes to me at the same time. And so you're giving them a shop window that they wouldn't have, which exactly. is great. Exactly. We've self-funded this, mm. right? So so we, un until the, we're taking it to market, it's completely self-funded. And everyone who has heard us trying to do this the first thing that they go is yeah but you 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 don't you won't be able to afford the marketing spend and burn that these other apps have most of these other apps use that marketing burden spend with me <laughs> When they came to so Egypt. you know what they're we spending. launched Uber yeah. in Egypt yeah. we launched Glovo in Egypt mm. so that power was built in house mm -hmm. and then you know and the media is great the media again this vo this this mouthpiece of the media because the reality you can go hey look at this cool independent brand that just launched a new collection you can buy it on bodice yeah 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 absolutely and so all of these into you know yeah. sub subhanallah malik you never again it was cairo zoom and Taskarti. yeah and you just start and it just started and you fight and, exactly. and it's also i think it's also a big i don't i've never thought we're the most talented in the room 
I've I've never thought maybe we don't even we don't necessarily have the best ideas or the most creative ideas. Very hard work. We are resilient and hard work. Yeah, and I think our secret power has always just been our work ethic and our resilience because we just refuse to give up. Revolution, we don't give up. Devaluation, we don't give up. Another devaluation, we don't give up. Pandemic. You know, I lie face down on the floor crying a lot, <laughs> but we still don't give up. Yeah. And just and yeah. just doing that consistently, and it's steps every day. all of these little steps yeah. bring together phenomenal opportunities. I never would have imagined 10 years later sitting here talking about Web3 and e-commerce yeah, but I think, but and I, leverage. I think and, you're, yeah. what you're saying is fair, but I also think you're shortchanging yourself a little bit. I think you and your brothers have also... Um, taken risks, but I also think that you are, as a family, as siblings, um, looking looking ahead, and because you're already in the space, you know, in a big picture way, you are looking at what are the trends coming our way, uh, what's yes. going to happen next, yeah. um, you know, and I think Egyptians generally are huge consumers of everything, first mm -hmm. of all, and they're quite early adopters. Yes. Very right? true, very true. Very important. And everyone has a mobile phone. Everyone has a mobile phone. Everyone. Everyone. Yeah, it's so, amazing. you know, yeah. why not? The sky's the limit, you know? I want to talk back to your writing. And I want to know, because I know that in the last few months, you've been writing these stream of consciousness kind of posts on Instagram. And they're clearly too long for Instagram. <laughs> yes, for but, sure. <laughs> but that's the medium you've been using. Yes. Do you see yourself, uh, and I think you probably do, but maybe not now, not, not necessarily taking a step back from what you're doing, but carving more time for that, for the actual writing and doing it. Firstly, what medium would you do it in? Because I think you'll say, yes, I want to write. I, I'm sure of that. But what would be your medium? Because you're clearly no longer a paper and pencil kind of gal. So it is my absolute dream to focus on my writing. It is my, it is my joy. It is my happy place. It is the thing that comes most naturally to me. And it is my greatest regret that I have 10 media publications <laughs> and I write for none of them because I have to run a business. Um, and so I have a fantasy of of running away and living on a mountain somewhere by myself writing. You know, there's a part of my motivation for doing things like the e-commerce, where it's a different financial structure that isn't so work intensive. Worth work intensive on a daily level that maybe it will afford me the luxury and the privilege to be able to step back a little and take time for my writing. Because I know, and I, I don't mean this to sound arrogant. But you know what you're I, good at. I know I'm I'm I know I'm good at what I do with MoFor because I work really hard and I'm passionate and I and it means a lot to me, especially on this media side. But I know where my real my special talent. You know, everyone has a special talent. And you're very lucky if you can figure what that out is. And I and I think it's ironic that I figured it out early and I was able to leverage it early and then I stopped. <laughs> no, I don't think you stopped. I think you just put it on hold. Yes. Right? Yes. And you used it in a certain capacity. Yes. So I, for sure, yeah. I mean, Mofor is built on on my on 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 storytelling, and that's what fuels it. And my ability to do that is what moves the business from the non-business perspective. But and so I hope, what format though would it take? I don't know. Maybe I do more on Instagram. Maybe I write another book. 
I have a, I have I have another book in me. I have books in me. I, I know you have I have more do. than one in you. I have books in me. But I just need see, to Do you think you cuz I wonder whether you might have a novel in you. Because so far, the work you've been doing has been very journalistic, yeah. personal journey, personal stories, observational. Yeah. Do you think you have a novel in you? I've never tried. Maybe I do. But you know, the thing is, I think you just, you know, it's like when I'm on holiday, I write, if, I'm, if I've had a break, I, I write a lot because my, it needs a certain, I don't, I don't need to sound like, no, nah, about it. It, needs like, a, it, it kind space. of needs a headspace, yeah, right? Sure. Because, sure. you know, when you're running a business, especially you wake up in the morning and it, and immediately you get infiltrated and bombarded with needs and requirements and deadlines and pressures. And it's very difficult then to leave a space for your creativity to come through and writing as much as it is a creative process. It's also a job. Do you know what I mean? And you have to be committed to doing everything discipline yeah, yeah. and you have to be able to make time for that yeah. discipline day in and day out which unfortunately I, i'm not afforded that time right now and i it is my dream to create it and it is one of it is especially recently you know i turned 42 last july and it is it is one of the things that plays on my mind more than ever right now because i'm much more cognizant of of my age and of time running out and you know alhamdulillah i still wake up with my health and my and my abilities of not letting too much more time get wasted before I explore this thing that I truly love. But you know, Amy, I don't think you're wasting time. I think you're just adding layers of experience to what will eventually be uh, material for your writing, you know? And there's no such thing as wasted time. Everything is everything is copy, right? It is. <laughs> Isn't that the old Maybe saying? Maybe I'll write like the Egyptian version of Succession and we'll see which one exactly. of us gets pushed off the side and of the kills who by <laughs> yeah, the end. Because exactly. <laughs> one of the siblings always gets Has killed, to die. right? Yeah. One goes overboard. One always goes overboard. <laughs> Thank you for joining me today. If you've enjoyed the episode, we've got more from Amy, including more thoughts about social media and the upcoming Web3 world. You can subscribe in Apple Podcasts to get this bonus episode exclusively for our members. This episode of What I Did Next was brought to you by ANT Media with me, Malak Fouad, and is co-produced by Shirag Desai. You can follow us on social media for video snippets from our interviews and other updates. Just search for What I Did Next on Instagram, Twitter, and on LinkedIn as well. We'd be grateful if you could take the time to leave a review of the episode in your favorite podcast player. See you soon.